Hello, listeners. Happy Friday the 13th. MurderCast now has a Patreon page where you can directly support the show's production for as little as $1 an episode. As a one-man operation, it can be hard to balance the podcast with my other obligations. But with your support, I can focus more time and energy on producing more episodes. In exchange, you'll get early access, ad-free episodes, and other patron-only rewards. So please visit patreon.com slash murdercast. Another really simple way to support the show? Tell a friend and leave me a five-star review. I really appreciate all of your support. Murdercast deals with mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Summer, 1977, Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Jose Chua and his wife, Remy, settle down for what they hope will be a quiet evening at home. Remy has not been feeling like herself lately. In fact, earlier that day, she was let go from her position at Edgewater Hospital for insubordination, a behavior completely out of character for Remy. This day was the culmination of a series of behavioral and personality changes in Remy that her co-workers had noticed. These included changes in where she ate lunch, conversational topics, and even switching her locker. It was as if Remy were a different person. That evening, abruptly, Remy gets up and leaves the room. After some minutes, her husband goes to check in on her. He finds Remy in their bedroom, lying on the bed, eyes blankly staring at the ceiling. Dr. Chua asks Remy if anything was wrong. A voice answered him, but it was not the voice of his wife. The voice answered in Tagalog, a language spoken in the Philippines, and in an accent he had never heard his wife speak before. My name is Teresita Basa, said the voice coming from his wife's body. Dr. Chua had never heard this name before. He again asks his wife what is troubling her calling her Remy. The voice intensifies, insisting to be listened to. My name is Teresita Basa. I was murdered, and I need your help. I need your help to bring my killer to justice. Murder, a primal evil that lurks in mankind, in all of us the ability, in some of us the drive, 
Some killers are caught and brought to trial. Others escape justice to live and die in infamy. These individuals are examined here on MurderCast. Six months earlier, a few minutes before 9 p.m. on February 21st, 1977, firefighters are dispatched to 2740 North Pine Grove, the north side of the city, near the Lincoln Park area of Chicago. Using his master key, the building janitor opens the door to apartment 15B on the 15th floor of the high-rise, allowing firefighters to crawl their way through the thick smoke. Inside, they find the source of the blaze. In the bedroom, a mattress, having been moved onto the floor, lies burning. As firefighters work to put out the blaze, they discover a pile of smoldering clothes underneath the burning mattress. Spraying the clothing with fire extinguishers, they uncover a nude female body. The victim's eyes stare blankly at the ceiling, her hair and part of her face having been burned off by the fire. Her arms have been positioned above her head and her legs have been spread open. In the center of the victim's chest, a butcher's knife is buried to the hilt leaving no question as to her cause of death. Who was this victim? Forty-seven-year-old Teresita Bassa was born in the Philippines on March 13, 1929, to a well-to-do family. A talented pianist, she earned a pianoforte certification in London and taught at a university before immigrating to the U.S. in 1957 to pursue higher education in music at Indiana University. After her father died of a respiratory ailment, Teresita was inspired to become a respiratory therapist in order to help people with similar breathing problems. In the 1970s, Teresita moved to Illinois and in 1975 found work as a respiratory therapist at Chicago's Edgewater Hospital. By all accounts, she was a hardworking, friendly, and generous person with no known enemies. Though not exceedingly outgoing, Teresita liked to throw parties, practice piano, and give free piano lessons to children in the neighborhood. From classical pieces to modern pop songs, Teresita could play anything requested of her. As a member of a local band, the Mahogany Five, she could often be found in the hospital cafeteria humming music to herself while enjoying her lunch in peaceful solitude. 
investigator Joe Stahula, a 10-year veteran of the Chicago Police Department, is assigned to the case. Having been promoted to investigator five years earlier, he begins by combing through Teresita's personal effects, attempting to contact friends, family, or co-workers to begin the investigation. The autopsy lists something of note. Teresita was actually a virgin when she was murdered. So no sexual assault had taken place. The body had been positioned in such a fashion to make it appear as a sex crime. In addition, a note that reads, Get tickets for A.S. is found in Teresita's planner. Who could the initials A.S. refer to? Detectives noticed that Teresita's apartment door had three separate locks on it, none of which had been tampered with. Could this signify that she knew her attacker and let them in willfully? After interviewing two co-workers who had spoken to Teresita the night she was murdered, investigators Tahula pieces together a timeline of the evening in question. Hold on a 7.10 p.m. Dr. John Abela, a co-worker at Chicago's Edgewater Hospital and band leader of Teresita's musical group, calls Teresita to discuss ticket sales for their upcoming concert at a local dance hall. He is on the phone with Teresita when someone knocks at the door. She tells Dr. Abella this person is there to possibly buy a ticket for their upcoming show. Hello? 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 Hi, Ruth. I have company, but it's okay. 8 p.m. Another hospital co-worker and friend named Ruth Loeb calls Teresita. They speak until approximately 8.15, at which time... Teresita mentions having a visitor over. Ruth could hear a male voice speaking in a normal tone in the background, but could not discern what he said. Okay, see you tomorrow. Ruth is the last person to have any contact with Teresita besides her murderer. The fire is reported less than a half hour later at 8.40 p.m. This makes it highly likely that the killer arrived at Teresita's apartment between 7.10 and 8.30 p.m. Was the person that arrived at Teresita's shortly after 7 p.m. while she was on the phone with Dr. John Abela the same person who killed her? Was this the same person with the initials A.S. that Teresita made a note to herself for, reminding her to get them tickets? Sadly, With no eyewitnesses to the crime, and with any fingerprints or potential physical evidence destroyed by the fire the killer set, there is little to go on. A few suspects are vetted, but they provide alibis for the night in question. With months passed and Teresita's body having been sent back to the Philippines for burial, the case appears to have gone cold. Until... In early August, 
six months after Teresita's murder. Investigators Tahula arrives at work to find a note, asking him to call a police officer from a neighboring precinct. When Investigators Tahula calls his police officer back, he receives some encouraging news about Teresita's murder. A neighboring police department in Evanston had called with a tip. Jose and Remy Chua had a curious connection with the Teresita Bassa case. Remy had worked in the same hospital as Teresita, and she had recently been receiving harassing phone calls. This, in part, prompted the couple to move away from Evanston to Skokie. At times, the caller would ask for someone that did not live at the Chua's residence. Other times, the caller would simply hang up. Remy's husband, Dr. Jose Chua, claimed he had recognized the voice on the other end of the phone as that of Alan Showery, an orderly that worked with his wife and Teresita Bassa at Edgewater Hospital. Investigators Tahula follows up the tip and makes an appointment to interview Dr. Chua. Dr. Jose Chua, a surgeon from Skokie, Illinois, an area near where Teresita's murder took place, is married to Remy, a respiratory therapist at Edgewater Hospital. Upon their meeting, Dr. Chua seems apprehensive, reluctant to open up to investigators. They discuss the strange phone calls the couple had been receiving, but when the detective presses Dr. Chua to say what's on his mind, Dr. Chua begins talking about spirit possession and the occult. Investigators Tahula is taken aback, but doesn't want to discourage the conversation that has just been opened. He decides to answer ambiguously, stating that, having years of experience as an investigator, he has just about seen it all, and nothing could surprise him at this point. This seems to placate Dr. Chua into continuing his story. He recounts how his wife Remy had been exhibiting some peculiar behavior following the murder of Teresita Bassa. Remy and Teresita both worked at Edgewater Hospital as respiratory therapists. After Teresita's death, co-workers noticed that Remy had been behaving like Teresita, taking on some of her characteristic traits. In addition, Remy had fallen into trances and had been startled, claiming to have seen visions. The first of these visions taking place in Edgewater Hospital's locker room Remy claimed to have seen an image of Teresita. Then, an image of her face with a man's face appearing behind her. These occurrences often left Remy feeling frightened. Soon, Remy's odd behavior took a turn for the worse. Dr. Chua gave his account of what appeared to be a possession of his wife Remy by the spirit of Teresita Bassa. As Remy stared at the ceiling, apparently in some sort of trance, the voice of Teresita Bassa spoke through Remy in a foreign tongue. My name is Teresita Bassa. The voice asked for Dr. Chua to call the authorities and for help 
and bringing her killer to justice. After this short exchange, Remy snapped out of the trance, seemingly unable to remember anything of the conversation her husband had with the voice of Teresita Bassa. Not knowing what to make of the incident, Dr. Chua elected to disregard it, perhaps writing it off as stemming from the stress his wife had been feeling at work. But two days later, Teresita's voice returned. As Remy was calling her real estate agent, her body was again seized by the spirit of Teresita Bassa. Remy dropped the handset in mid-sentence, and Dr. Chua again heard the voice of Teresita, communicating through his wife's body. This time, the voice was more persistent, again pleading Dr. Chua for help and to contact the police. After this second incident, Dr. Chua became concerned and discussed it with some medical co-workers. These friends, also doctors, advised him not to report the incident, that it would tarnish his reputation as a man of science. Dr. Chua decided to heed this advice and still did not report anything to law enforcement. And how could he? He only had the voice of a murdered woman speaking through his possessed wife. Surely, his story would make him sound crazy. Unsure of how to handle these apparent possessions, Dr. Chua went to work the next day, as usual. When he returned home, he could hear crying from inside the bedroom. Dr. Chua ran inside and found his wife once again on the bed, in a trance. The voice of Teresita Bassa speaking through her for a third time. The voice, now exasperated, demanded to know why Dr. Chua had not yet contacted police. Dr. Chua, a rational man of science, explained that he could not go to the police with unfounded stories and that the police would ask for the identity of Teresita's killer, along with proof. To Dr. Chua's surprise, the voice gave him just that. You know, I often find myself pulled in so many directions throughout the day, which gets very exhausting. When I need a pick-me-up, I reach for Magic Mind. Just one shot of Magic Mind delivers me the energy boost I need with its 100% natural proprietary blend of matcha tea and herbal extracts, including cordyceps mushrooms and ashwagandha, which lowers blood pressure and brings my body back in balance. On day one, I felt really dialed in and was able to really focus, and it helped me get through the long hours of researching, writing, voicing, and producing this podcast. After just a few days of using Magic Mind, I noticed I could power through those long afternoons. Seeing how well it worked for me, I encourage you to try it out if you're looking to enhance your focus. I have a 20% off code to share with you. It's MURDERCAST20. To use it, you can go to magicmind.co slash MURDERCAST and enter the code MURDERCAST20 at checkout. The best part is... 
that they have a money-back guarantee. If you get the subscription, you get 40% off. My 40% off code only lasts 10 days, so take advantage. magicmind.co slash murdercast. Your friends will think it's magic, but you'll know it's Magic Mind. As evidence that Dr. Chua could take to authorities, Teresita's voice began communicating things that only the killer and victim could know. She identified her killer by name. A co-worker of hers named Alan Showery. The voice went on to describe how Showery had gained Teresita's trust and befriended her. The night of the murder, Showery came over to supposedly fix Teresita's television. Instead, after she let him into her apartment, Showery knocked Teresita unconscious, then stabbed her in the chest with a knife he retrieved from the kitchen. Afterwards, Showery had stolen $30 from her purse, taken some jewelry, then set the mattress on fire and placed it on top of Teresita's body to cover up any evidence. Dr. Chua was shocked to hear such a detailed account of how Teresita had been murdered. But Teresita was not finished. The voice continued, saying that Showery had given some of the jewelry he had stolen from Teresita's apartment to his girlfriend, Yanka Kalmuk. This jewelry, a pearl cocktail ring and a jade pendant, could be used as evidence against Showery. Dr. Chua asked how these pieces of jewelry could be identified. The voice responded that Teresita's cousins Ron Samara and Ken Bassa, as well as two of her friends, Richard Passati and Ray King would be able to identify the jewelry. After this, <gasps> Remy came out of her trance and once again could not remember what had happened. As Dr. Chua finished his unbelievable story, investigators Tahula remained outwardly calm. He finished his notes, thanked the couple for their time, and left their home. Back at the police station, Stahula looked over the report on the interview he had just conducted. It was a crazy story, and he undoubtedly would also seem crazy if he turned it in. But the case had gone cold, and he had no other leads. After another moment, Stahula turns in the report, as well as a request for a background check for one Alan Showery. Three days later, on August 11th, 1977, investigators Tahula arrived at the police department to a litany of jokes and wisecracks from his fellow officers about the report he had written. <laughs> Ghosts and possessions were not typically written up on official police reports. He had prepared himself for this reaction 
but the taunting still bothered him. As he read over Alan Showery's background check, however, he quickly forgot about the humor that came at his expense. Showery's criminal records included arrests for possession of stolen mail, theft, burglary, and two arrests for sexual assault. The two victims had known Showery, and the rapes had allegedly occurred in the victim's apartments. The pattern fit the Teresita Bossa murder. This, combined with the fact that Alan Showery lived less than four blocks from where Teresita was murdered, and that his initials were A.S., matching the ones found on the note in Teresita's journal, made him a person of interest worth looking into. Alan Showery had a checkered past. A university dropout, he often liked to pass himself off as a doctor and a Vietnam veteran, both of which were untrue. Showery had also been married previously and had abandoned his wife and baby in Mobile, Alabama. He worked as an orderly at Edgewood Hospital alongside Teresita, though he liked to pass himself off as a doctor. He knew Teresita and, in fact, Showery had often accompanied Teresita to the immigration office as she was applying for U.S. citizenship. Each time he would accompany her, Teresita would tip him $5 to $10, a generous amount of money in 1977. Showery is asked to come in for questioning, which he does of his own accord. Detectives do not want to say where they've gained their insight, but use the information they've obtained from the voice of Teresita against Showery. They start by asking inane questions and then begin grilling him on his relationship and recent interactions with Teresita on the night of the murder. How did you know Teresita Bassa? I worked with her at Edgewater Hospital. Have you ever been inside of her apartment? No. I swear I've never been in that apartment. You were seen with her at her apartment building that night. What were you doing there? I was supposed to fix her television, but I didn't have the right schematics. You just said you'd never been in her apartment. Well, I was, but I hadn't been in her apartment for several months. Showery was beginning to sweat. So your fingerprints would not match any of the ones we collected from the crime scene? Well, I was there that night, but just for a couple of minutes. I didn't have the right tools to fix her television, so I laughed. I went home to do some electrical work around the house. You can ask my girlfriend if you like. Detectives do just that, asking his girlfriend Yanka if she remembers Showery doing any electrical work on the night of the murder. She does not corroborate his alibi, however, saying Showery knows nothing about electricity and would not be qualified to perform any sort of electrical maintenance. Even more interesting, detectives notice a large pearl ring on Yanka's finger, 
just like the one the voice of Teresita Bassa described. Showery's girlfriend is asked where she obtained the ring. She tells detectives that Showery gifted her the jewelry in either late February or early March, just after Teresita's murder. She is asked to bring all of her jewelry down to the police station for identification. Detectives call Teresita's cousins and friends to identify the pearl cocktail ring on Yanka's finger. It's a positive match, and they also identify a jade pendant among Yanka's jewelry as belonging to Teresita Bassa. Yanka confirms that she was also gifted this piece of jewelry by her boyfriend around the time of the murder. When confronted with this evidence, Showery first denies having stolen the jewelry from Teresita after murdering her, claiming to have obtained the jewelry from a pawn shop. When asked for a receipt of the purchase, Showery reconsiders and decides to make a full confession. A condensed excerpt of Showery's confession as transcribed in the 1992 book Teresita, The Voice from the Grave, by John O'Brien and Edward Bauman. At the time, I was living at 445 West Surf, only a three-minute walk. I decided what I was going to do. I was going to go there and kill her and rob her. Immediately after she let me in, she was proceeding to lock the door. I choked her into subconsciousness and later on left her on the living room floor. She was locking the door and I came in back of her and I choked her. I went to her purse to see if she had any money. After that, I went into the bedroom, searched through her things and didn't find anything. So, as I was searching through her things, I went to check the bedroom. I proceeded to carry her, picked her up from where she was lying on the living room floor and carried her in the bedroom. In the bedroom, I disrobed her, proceeded in the kitchen and got a kitchen knife and stabbed her. I then ransacked the living room and the rest of the house. I returned back into the bedroom, got a piece of paper of some kind, lit a fire to it, threw it on the mattress, and picked up the mattress and overturned it. I left immediately after that. But this was not the end of the so-called Voice from the Grave story. A series of setbacks would delay the trial until January 8, 1979. While incarcerated and awaiting trial, Showery's attorney convinced him to retract his confession and plead not guilty, citing that the police did not have any probable cause to investigate Showery. The defense attorney planned to force investigators to disclose the reason why they focused their efforts on Showery, thus bringing to light the Chua's incredible story of Remy being possessed by the ghost of Teresita Bassa and naming her killer. This strategy seemed to work. Court is now in session. Please take your seats. After two days of deliberations, the jury is hopelessly deadlocked, and the judge declares a mistrial. A date for a new hearing is set, but the second trial would not come to pass. On February 21st, 
on the two-year anniversary of Teresita's murder, Alan Showery called his attorney to say he was pleading guilty. The following day, against the advice of his attorney, Showery pleads guilty to murder. He is sentenced to 14 years in prison, the minimum amount of time imposed for murder under Illinois state law at that time. His sentences for armed robbery and arson, four years for each count, are to run concurrently, effectively adding no time to an already light sentence. Adding insult to injury, Showery served only four and a half years in prison before being paroled in 1983. After he was released, Showery moved in with a woman named Naomi who had been attending his trial, once again abandoning his common-law wife and newly-born child. Though Teresita's family received some measure of justice, just over four years of prison for the brutal murder, robbing, burning, and desecration of an innocent woman hardly seems just. One could only speculate what the sentence would have been if the victim had been a white woman. Two well-known psychics who had previously worked with police suggested that Teresita had chosen Remy Chua as a vehicle for her justice because they were compatible chemistry-wise and psychic-wise, despite the two not having a close work or personal relationship. Teresita picked Mrs. Chua to make justice happen, said Irene Hughes. Showery, in a jailhouse interview with reporter John O'Brien. Mrs. Chua faked this. Without a doubt, she faked it. She was definitely upset about something. She was very nervous after the murder. I don't know why she maimed me. I think it was designed for somebody else, but I was caught by my Achilles heel, so to speak. I had been critical of her job performance with patients. That is a motive. Did the ghost of Teresita Bassa possess her co-worker's body in order to attain retribution for her murder? Or was Alan Showery correct in claiming that Remy named him as the killer to exact revenge for Showery's criticism of her job performance? An interesting note. An independent investigation separate from that of the Chicago Police Departments, conducted by Detective Dio Dante, found three other people who claimed to have been possessed or visited by Teresita's spirit. Was Teresita's desire for justice so strong she reached out to multiple people from beyond the grave? A skeptic would say that perhaps the bad blood between Remy and Alan Showery caused her to implicate him in Teresita's murder. In regards to the spirit possession, both Teresita and Remy were co-workers, and both hailed from the Philippines. Is it then so strange that Remy would speak the Tagalog language? Either way, perhaps, like investigators Tahula, one should keep an open mind to the things we do not fully understand. Thank you for listening to MurderCast.
If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to us and give a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. More importantly, tell a friend about the show. Sharing the show is a great way to help the podcast. Thank you for listening to MurderCast. Murdercast.